work, work, work. Works. It is wonderful to be here with you. Ready to be stretched? <laughs> That's where you're supposed to say yes. Open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 1. And uh, you're familiar with what we're doing this week. Walking through verses 12 through uh, 16 which is the Kingdom Christ section of the first chapter. John gives us an introduction before the prophecy. And the purpose of the, uh, the introduction, of course, is to introduce the prophecy. Uh, he's introducing four things to us in this introduction. And we labeled them all with the same letter so they're easy to remember. Uh, words starting with the same letter. Uh, prologue, person, praise, and patmos. So he's introducing those four things in this first chapter. Uh, verses 9 down to the end of the chapter is the as the Patmos section where you find out some details concerning uh, his being on the island of Patmos the, uh, and how he is uh, suffering along with uh, the seven churches and then he goes into this call. He hears this voice behind him in verses 10 and 11 that tell him to write down everything that he sees and send it to the seven churches. And then, of course, he turns in verse 12 to see the voice that's speaking to him. And in verses 12 down through verse 16, you have this elaborate, vivid picture of Jesus, the Jesus that he sees there. And we're walking through that material, which is really, really wonderful, powerful. Verses 12 and 13 tell us uh, that when he turns around, the first thing that he sees is Jesus standing in the middle of these lampstands. We learn that uh, Jesus is dressed in this high priestly garment or this priestly garment which tells us uh, that he is the one that ministers to the, uh, the, the seven lampstands. And of course, the seven lampstands are us. Okay, It's the church. And, it's, and one of the things that I found interesting, it's not only the lampstand can not only be a, uh, a um, I don't know if euphemism is the right word or it can be an illustration of the church, but it can also be an example of who you and I are because the two witnesses in chapter 11 are also referred to as lampstands. So Jesus is ministering to the lampstands. And lampstands is really significant language because the lampstand holds up the lamp. That's all it does. So our number one responsibility, he made it easy for us, we are to hold up Jesus. And the reason we're holding up Jesus is because he is the one who lived the life. Really important. He is the one that's lived the life that you and I are to live. Okay, we don't have a... See, Jesus is not a superman. He is... I mean, the book of Isaiah tells us he is ordinary, average, everyday Christian. Okay? He is a son of man. He is the first among many. So, in Jesus, we see who we've been called to be. So, he is able... Uh, he is able to minister to us because he lived like us. And I want to continue tonight, and that was verses 12 and 13. I want to continue tonight to look with you at verse 14. But this is a little aggressive. Um, just hear me on this. Teenagers, hear me on this. Okay? Adults, hear me on this. You cannot, no joking, there's no, just, I'm cutting straight to the point. You cannot pull off Christianity. You, you can't do that. Um, you don't have it in you to be a Christian. Just telling you. You don't have it in you to be a Christian. I really struggled with that. Um, in the Marine Corps, first day, <laughs> true story, I'm sitting in there with some 110 other guys. It was like a, over 100 of us in our platoon, one of the biggest platoons they've had come through in years, 1995, or excuse me, 1992. 
And uh, I'm this I'm this strung out drug addict recovering uh, six foot like two at that time, um, you know, hundred and like thirty five forty pounds. This little guy, and um, this drill instructor stands right in front of me and he's looking at me. And he's buff and intimidating. He's got like a all these ribbons that not only go up his shoulder but they go down his back as well. And learn later he was special forces and he was just this. He was mean. I mean, he was mean. He was mean to us. He wasn't. He, he did things that even drill instructors get in trouble for doing. He was just. I'd probably use the term jerk. I don't know if it's appropriate in this setting, but he was just. He was mean. And he stood right in front of me and he said, "You're not going to make it." And I remember looking, thinking in my head, "You will have to kill me in order for me not to make it." Well, throughout boot camp, they dropped half the platoon. Half the guys either quit. Or they, they booted him and said, you don't have what it takes. And he rode me every single day. Now, the, the, you would think that the story would end is after I graduate, he would come up and shake my hand and say, you made it. He'd come up to me and says, you're still not going to make it. Okay? He, just, he, was, he was mean. Okay? He wasn't a nice guy. But uh, I, I made it through boot camp. Um, and I pretty much made it through everything I've ever you know, said I was going to. So I got out of, out of the military. God got a hold of my life. I, I responded at an altar, said, Jesus, I want to be a Christian. And I remember thinking, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and I went into the Christian lifestyle. I went into being a follower of Jesus. See, I went into, if you want to call it Christianity, the same way I went into everything else in my life. And I began to fall apart. Because the first thing that I had to learn, and you, ha you have to learn this. See, Christianity is beyond your capacity. It's, it's, I mean, really, it's beyond your ability says Christianity is not the sum of activities that we do. See, it's not, well, I'm going to be a Christian, so, okay, uh, I'm going to get into the Bible, find out what I have to do and do it. Well, you can read the Bible and do, you know, do the specific activities that the Bible says to do and still not be a Christian. And you can come to church and read your Bible and pray three times a day. And See, Christianity is, is not an activity-based deal. It is a sourcing. See, it is an infilling it is not doing different things. It's being a different person. That's really significant. Uh, and to communicate to that to people is really radical. Uh, even today, this last December, I was in my home area and, and, and uh, I did a revival for my home church where I grew up. And they put pictures of me all over town and everywhere and for promoting the revival. And my math teacher, Mr. Kirkland... I come in, it was like just it was Sunday through Wednesday, it's probably like a Monday night or Tuesday night. Uh, I think it was Monday night, because uh, he came Monday night and Tuesday night. But he shows up Monday night, and I'm shaking hands at the door, and I see him coming. And he walks right up, and I said, Mr. Kirkland. And he goes, I had to see this for myself. That's exactly what he said. And uh, I shook his hand, and he laughed, and he came in, and, and he was through the service. And man, it was just, God moved in the services there at Harris Chapel. It was wonderful. And... Um, after the service is over, I come up to him. I almost, I, almost, I felt like he was grading me or something, you know, like high school. And, and he says, I'll be back tomorrow. And he came back Tuesday and he, he hugged me, told me he's proud of me. And it was just, um, I find myself running into those kinds of people, the people that I used to meet and, uh, and the people I used to know and all those kind of things. And I, I, I rerun I re into them and meet them again. And, and see, those who aren't Christians, you try to describe what happened. And because they guess stuff like, oh, you started going to church. Well, no, that's not what happened to me. They say, well, I mean, you got your act together. No, I didn't. I mean, you buckled down. No, I didn't. <laughs> they say, how do you communicate that I'm different? 
that I'm a different person, that you're looking at the same face, but there is something totally different going on inside of me. See, it's not just Jeremiah's life that's different. It's Jeremiah that it's been invaded by the Holy Spirit and we are coexisting in one body. And, I, and I'm different on the inside. I feel different. See, it's, it's one thing to do different things. It's another thing to feel different about those things. To have different passions, different drives. See, in order to live as Christ wants you to live, that has to go on in your life. That has to take place in your life. He has to source you. Now... The reason I'm really making a big point of that is because that's exactly what he's talking about in verse 14. Again, Jesus, see his role, we are to hold up Jesus, but his role, he's the priest. See, he is the one that's bringing about change in our life. See, he is the one that's ministering to us. See, the idea that Jesus came and ministered for three years, died on a cross and went to heaven in retirement, is not biblical. See, he is setting before the Father, the right hand of the Father, he still intercedes on our behalf. So he's still ministering to us. See, he's still working in our life. And so the aspects that's seen in verses, or that's given to us in verses 12 through 16 shows us how he is working. That makes sense? Now verse 14 gives us two aspects, and we're looking at them together because I think they're tied together. I, I, I believe they're tied together. Verse 14 reads, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Okay? His eyes were like blazing fire. Of course, you'll note, and it's, it's an accu actually a very accurate translation, you'll note that in verse 14, uh, referring to his head and hair, the term white is used twice. Uh, and that's because it's, it's written twice in the original language. So what he's trying to describe is that his head and hair were not just white. I mean, they are white. Like really, really white. Okay? He gives two examples in the same sentence. See, it's white, it's white as snow. In fact, I think he says white as wool and white as snow, doesn't he? Yeah, white like wool is white as snow. See, he's running out of illustrations. Everything he knows it's white, he's putting in here. It's white like wool, it's white like snow. And that's how you have white interpreted throughout the Bible. Oftentimes, when we want to describe something as white, they'll pick snow or wool. He puts them both here. So he's really emphasizing that it's white. Now... He's, it, it, there's a couple ways you can translate this. You can leave it as, as surface level kind of translation where he's saying, well, he's saying Jesus has got a white head and white hair. He's a white guy. Okay? You can come across with that, with that kind of interpretation, which, you know, probably is not the best. Um, you could, uh, what I first thought of was white hair being a sign of wisdom, uh, in the Old Testament. But, um, that imagery, wisdom imagery associated with the head and hair is not used in prophetic literature. It's not really used in prophetic literature. Um, in prophetic or apocalyptic or um, eschatological, which means end of times kind of writings, um, they use colors and they use numbers consistently, but they're not meant to be taken necessarily literal. Okay? Now, numbers is easily seen because numbers are used in the book of Revelation and oftentimes, more times than not, they're not to be taken literal. Um, an easy example of that is in verse 4. Uh, we have um, this statement regarding the Holy Spirit that says He is seven spirits before His throne. If you have the King James Version, you're going to note that it reads the sevenfold spirit. That's an interpretive 
that's an interpretive help uh, in the King James Version. Because in the original language, it's actually seven spirits. Now, obviously, we know that the Holy Spirit is not seven. He is how many? One. We serve one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, we don't serve a nine-member trinity, Father, Son, and seven spirits. We serve one spirit, he's seven. Now, if he's one, why would he call him seven? Well, seven is not literal. Seven is, it literally means in, if you would trace this back in the early Semitic languages, which is, it feeds the uh, Hebrew and Greek, you would find that seven uh, literally gives you the idea of wholeness or completeness or fullness. So he's talking about the full spirit of God. The, the God in His fullness, okay? The Holy Spirit represents God in His fullness, He's in His completeness. Now, that imagery is not only used for the Holy Spirit, it's also used for the seven churches. Now, yes, there are seven churches that are spoken to, but actually, in this day and time, biblically, we know there are nine. You don't even have to go outside the Bible for that. We know that when this letter was written, there were nine churches in the province of Asia, not seven. And you know that from the end of the book of Colossians, where Paul writes and he says to the church in Colossae, which was in the province of Asia, about 50 miles away from Laodicea, he tells the church at Colossae, he says, when you get done reading this letter, I want you to read the letter that's sent to, uh, to the church in Laodicea. And then we also know that Heropolis, which is also mentioned in the book of Colossae, was also in the province of Asia. So biblically, we know of nine churches. Why only seven? Why only seven mentioned? Well, these are the only churches that have problems. <laughs> it's a little church, a little church joke for you. Um, no, uh, see, he's writing, yeah, to these specific seven churches, but it is to, this letter is to circulate among all the churches in the province of Asia, and these are seven particular issues that are going on in those churches, but are representative of the, all of the whole church. Okay? So the point that I'm trying to get to you is, is that the numbers are not meant to be taken literal in the book of Revelation, nor are colors. Okay? Colors are not uh, to be taken literal as well. In fact, when you go over, and we're not going to go through all these, of course, but when you go over to chapter 6, you're going to note that there are six different colors. I think it's six. Oh, that's not true. There are several different colors of horses. There's a white horse, there's a red horse, there's a pale horse. There's a black horse. Um, you have all of these ki these colors of horses that are that are referred to. Now, each of these uh, represents a concept or represents an image uh, the author is trying to portray to us. Black, uh, most of the time, especially in the Book of Revelation, represents evil or death or despair, and black is obviously contrasted with God. Okay. And if you look at the context of that black horse, you're going to see that. Uh, the pale horse, or, and the color pale, represents uh, terror-stricken or a corpse, or death, dead bodies, okay, which is always exciting. And uh, red, obviously, represents blood. It's used not only in the book of Revelation, but consistently throughout the Old Testament, uh, having blood on their hands. The prophet Isaiah uh, speaks, to, uh, uh, speaks to Israel about having blood on their hands. Okay, uh, red represents blood. Now, white, especially used in the book of Revelation, has two basic uses. It's used in two ways, and I'm going to give you some examples of these. It's used uh, to uh, paint the picture of absolute moral purity of God. Okay, 
To be white is to have the absolute moral purity of God. We call that holiness. Okay? God is holy. That is absolute moral purity. Okay? God is 100% pure. He is 100% whole. Okay? That's what white stands for. Now, white also is applied to us, which has to do with this redeemed kind of deal. That we have been made holy. We've been forgiven of sin. We are completely without sin. Let me give you a couple examples of where this is used. Um, you go uh, from our passage into chapter 2. And if you don't mind, I work you a little bit this evening having you follow me. If you can keep up. In chapter uh, 2, the church at Pergamum, um, the reward for this church in overcoming their sin is that there's going to be this acquittal. And it's associated with white. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. And it's, it's really significant that he says it's a white stone. And I, I found it just, and I won't go into detail on all these, but I found it interesting that scholars uh, link the white stone with the, um, it's the yes vote. Uh, back in their day, uh, within the Sanhedrin, you would have a white stone and a black stone. A black stone would be a no vote. A white stone would be a yes vote. Okay, Accepting Jesus, living for Jesus, you get a white stone. Your name on it. Okay, You're a yes vote. You're in. I kind of got excited about that. I thought that was neat. I got a white stone. I'm acquittal. I'm in. Um, you go into chapter 3, and we're dealing with the church at Sardis. And uh, verses 4 and 5... He tells this church that there are some people there who have not soiled their clothes and they will walk with me dressed in white. Why? For they're worthy. Okay? They're worthy. And he who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. Which has this, again, hey, you're included, you're forgiven, you're without sin, you've been made holy, you've, you can stand in the presence of God. Okay? That says it to Sardis. Uh, to the church in Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, he tells this church, uh, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Okay, So there's this covering. It's, it's hey, it's redeemed deal. Um, and you go through, and we won't go through all these, but in chapter 4 you have the elders who stand in the presence of God and they're clothed in white. Uh, chapter 6, verse 2, uh, the first horse is a white horse. Okay? And some have taken that to be like Alexander the Great or something, and that's not true. Um, you know, they say, well, he has this bow, and he's bent as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Well, yeah, he has a bow, but did you know that word for bow is used in the Old Testament for a rainbow, which is the symbol of God's glory? And white is associated with God in the book of Revelation? And so the first writer is this, is this going out and it's this movement of God that conquers through his glory. And that contrasted with the second horse, which is the red horse, which is the uh, conquering through bloodshed and all of that deal. I think it's the red horse that's next, isn't it? Yeah, fire red one. Uh, verses, uh, verse 11, you have a whole group there that, uh, that's under the altar. They've been martyred for Christ. They've chosen Him. And they get, as a reward, white robes. 
and then uh, the great multitude in chapter 7, verse 9, and it goes on and on and on. They're all clothed in white. So white is used, really significant. White is used to describe redeemed. It's, it's without sin. It's, it's the holiness of God. It's, it's that who God is. When John, really important, when John sees Jesus, see his head and hair are white. See, he is holy. Okay? He, is, he is without sin. See, there's no, there's no selfishness in that. It's, it's having your best interest in mind. Um, I, I grew up a very skeptical person. Um, every family has their horror stories. I had a family. We had a, I had a grandpa in our family who molested all of his daughters and uh, just was untrust. He was, you know, he's not worthy of trust. See, I could never go stay all night with Grandma and Grandpa because my mom was so afraid of Grandpa. And I didn't learn that until I was early teen years. And it was, it was devastating to me that, I mean, and I knew about the world. I had three, I was, I was uh, attempted abductions upon my life three times when I was a kid, uh, three particular times. And it was, I mean, I would walk, it had such an impact on my life from like seven years old up to about 12 years old that I would be scared to go out at night and even trick-or-treating with my friends. I was just, I was always scared to death of people. I just had this skeptic, this un, untrustfulness. And then I learned about my grandpa and I just, I mean, you can't trust anybody. I mean, especially in today's world, like, there's times it's, it was a beautiful day today. And, I mean, to let CJ go out and play in the parking lot, just to go out and play in the, and there's like a little playground there. and I mean... I guess from my framework, I just we would have to be sitting there and just to let him go out and do that by himself is just some parents think, well, you just you can't be overprotective. But see, I've always I've always been like that, a very untrusting person. Following Jesus takes absolute. I mean, hear this. It's I trust you. It's you know better than me. It's I I have to trust that he has my best intentions in his heart. See, he's holy. See, he has his best in my, in my mind. Everything he does in my life is for my good. See, he's worked. There's no self-centeredness in his body. And again, that's not just a three-year thing when he was on this earth ministering, giving up his life for you and I. His entire eternity, what we call heaven, is not, you know, living for himself, got a big mansion and a, and a golden RV with a, with a swimming pool and, and he goes golfing every day. His entire existence is wrapped up into us. Why? It's who he is. So you have the ministry of Jesus focused towards the seven churches. It's, it's, hey, he's got his, he's got our best in his, in his, in his mind. See, he's moving. He's, he, he's the, it's the holiness of God. There's no self-centered agenda at all in him. It's a holy God ministering to us. Now, I don't, I, I begin to, when I begin to go through and look at uh, certain aspects of Jesus' uh, body that was, that was highlighted, why head? See, why would he talk about his head? Why not his ear? Why not his heart? Okay? Why didn't John say, I saw his heart? Well, and then you say, well, how could you see his heart? Well, yeah, but he talks about his, out of his mouth came in, coming a double-edged sword, which, I mean, if he can talk about a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, which is his tongue, why couldn't he talk about, I mean, why, why pick his head and hair of all things? See, why not talk about his nose? 
Okay, why not talk about his right hand? I mean, just, or, or, you know, his legs, or, I mean, why did, why does he pick certain things? And I understood the holiness idea and, and the white idea. It's really prevalent. But see, why did he pick his head and hair? Well, the head, and I didn't know this either. This is really a neat, a really neat discovery. That in prophetic literature, when the head is referenced, they're referencing the very source of an individual's life. Okay? They are, they are speaking to the very source of an individual's life. So when he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about the very source of his life is that. Okay? See, he's, he's ministering to the lampstands and the very source of who his life is, the very source of who he is, is this holiness, this, this never live for yourself kind of God that's moving and acting in our life. The very source of his life. Now you would say, uh, what do you mean by source? Jesus came and lived a life that was sourced by God. Okay? We are to live a life that is sourced by God. See, he doesn't... The idea that I come and I live for God is not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants to come and reproduce himself through us. Now, you might say, what does that look like? Um, I come to Jesus and I say, uh, I'm going to live to please you. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to say yes to you. And I go out and live and I fall flat on my face time and time and time again. You know how many teens and adults I've seen do that? Um, go to teen camp. It happens to adults, but they hide it more. Um, go to teen camp, and I watch a teen come down to an altar, and, I mean, they're not faking it. <coughs> they're not faking it. I mean, they're crying, and you got tears and snot. It's gross. It's embarrassing. I mean, they're just, I mean, they're just a mess. Okay, there. And uh, doesn't matter, popularity, cool, good-looking what. I mean, Jesus is working in their life and they're falling apart. They stand up, they're crying, they look ridiculous, we're making fun of them. And uh, No, we're not making fun of them. But, I mean, it's just this radical thing in their life, they give their life to Jesus. They didn't fake that. They tear up clothing, throw away music, I mean, just, it's incredible. Uh, change, I'm not going to go to this college, I'm going to go to this college, I mean, all these kind of things. Track them down three or four months later and I've seen where... Three, four months later, they're back to the way they used to be. What happened? I cannot bring myself to say they didn't, it was fake, they didn't mean it. So what happened? And if we were really honest, I bet you I could point at each one of us in here where we've all said, hey, I want to, God talks to us and deals with us on something, and two or three weeks, two or three months down the road, we're back in the same old kind of thing. Why? See, why does that happen? It is a source issue. This is what we're talking about. See, we're talking about Jesus' head. We're talking about the very source of his life. I'm not talking about activities. We're talking about source. I don't believe activities are what's bad. It's what sources those activities. You have uh, the teen who comes down and says, hey, I'm going to do things right. Well, you go back and look and you ask him some questions. And I've done this. Say, I've tracked them down over the years. I've been able to do this a couple times. You track them down, and you say, what happened? And they say, I just couldn't keep everything going. I mean, I went home from camp, and I just was going to do the right things and say the right things, and I quit doing this, and I quit doing that, and it just became overwhelming, and they said they broke under the pressure, which tells me that wasn't what something God was doing. It was, what something, it was things that they were doing for God. See, what would happen, what would happen if I went home from camp 
and said, I'm not doing anything else. I'm, you're going to do everything or it's not going to get done. Which means I come home from camp and say, hey, I want, I want to feel different. See, I, I want to be a different person. I don't want to get up in the morning and have this list, this list of things to do and not do. See, I want to get up in the morning and be different. I want to feel different. I want to be sourced. I want to be changed. I want to be a new creation. I want you to come down inside of this body and change me so that I feel different. I just don't want to go out and... and uh, uh, see, there's a difference. You, you, you talk about a person who witnesses. See, there's... I'm not really upset with a group of people who does not, you know, does not witness. I'm not really upset that you don't witness. See, I'm upset that you could keep from witnessing. Yes. See, I, I, I'm not impressed that you don't have sex before marriage. See, I get impressed that God is opening your eyes so you can see women and men the way He does. There's a difference. See, one is not doing it, but really wanting to, and the other is seeing the way that he sees. See, one is I don't beat my wife, but the other is I'm, I'm seeing my wife the way that he does. Do you see the difference? It's, it's Jesus come in my life and, and change the way I see. See, change the way that I think. Change the way that I am. See, Jesus, and you, see when you look at Jesus, he is the head. Now, what's really interesting... That, that imagery of, of, of the head of Jesus being emphasized is not just a book of Revelation thing. It's a Bible thing. Did you know that we are the body and He is our... He's our head. Which means what? He's our source. See, Jesus is to be our source. Let me read you a couple passages. Paul, and this is all over the place, so I had to be really selective on the passages that I, that I read from, that I talked about. You go back into 1 Corinthians, and of course, obviously, you're, you're, all of you are very familiar. Uh, this crowd's going to be really familiar with these passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he goes through the whole body language and the spiritual gift language. And, of course, right smack dab in the middle of it, in verses 12 and 13, he says this. He says, The body is one unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Okay? We were all... We're all now, if you look at that language, see, literally... You, as a Christian, are to be interwoven with Jesus. I mean, uh, inextricable. I mean, indissoluble. You know what indissoluble means? As a Christian, Jesus lives in your body. I've been thinking about how to explain this to CJ. It's, it's when Jesus comes live inside of you, you are one. It's He and you sharing the same space and you're linked together. You're, you're woven together. You're... you're See, you no longer can tell who he is and you are, you're one, you're just, he's living in you. And then you can't break that apart, you can't dissolve it. And an idea of this would be, um, a way to illustrate this to you would be, um, you have a couple who's been married for about 15 years, they're calling it quits. He's taken his half, she's taken his half. But they got a problem. They have this indissoluble union they can't get rid of. And his name is Mark. Or Sam. Or Debbie, whatever. It's a, it's a little boy. 
It's a little girl. How are you going to take your half? She says, I got his ears, nose, and leg. So I'm taking that with me. You can have the rest. Well, you can't do that. Because literally, there is two that's come and, and, and the genetics and the genes and... Do you see that? You can't pull that apart. So when we're talking about the church and Christ. See, literally, there is this linking together. You cannot be a Christian without Christ as the head. Now, he, he expounds on this a little bit more in the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 1, verse 10... Very plainly, actually verse 9, and this is a part of a greater section, but he says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time uh, times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring, get this, to bring all things, this is the revelation. This speaks just blatantly of what's taking place in the book of prophecy, Revelation. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. Even Jesus. See, He is the head. Now you go down a few more verses, and in verse 22, He says this. He says, And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be the head over everything for the church, which is His body. So we are His body and He is our head. You cannot separate that. So the very source, and He goes on and talks about it at the end. probably should go ahead and give you that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, verse 15, 14 and 15. Uh, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful schemes. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So He is our head. And to say that He is our head means He's our source. So here, here's what he's saying. When John turns around, this is just overwhelming to me. When John turns around, he sees the very source of our life, okay, is this holy God, this working on our behalf. See, he is to be our source. See, he is to meet the needs in our life. See, as a Christian, see, as a Christian, I had all these, I had, hear this, I had all these bodily drives that were out of whack. I had all these emotions. I have all these dreams that there is no way I could bring under control. See, as a Christian, I have the fruit of the Spirit, which means the very source of my life would come down. Jesus would come down and control what I could not control. See, Jesus come down and meet, meet this bodily drive, meet my, fulfill my sex drive. See, there's a fallacy that thinks more sex fulfills your sex drive. You don't have to be around very long to realize that's not true. You don't have to be around very long to realize that's not true. Jesus is the only one that can fulfill my bodily drives. Uh, anger. This bothered me. When I was in college, we had a whole group of guys that... It's a long story, but they really got into this being open with Jesus and... And when you're angry, you would go in and just scream and yell and curse and just, I mean, just be in rage and, and vent and talk to Jesus like that. Because the idea was, is the only, you just had to get that out of your system. So if you're really, see, if you're really bent out, the best way to just get it out of your system, because that meets the need. No, he meets that need. So venting and screaming and yelling replaced Jesus. And see, every single problem and sin in my life that, that, that tripped me up in the past comes back to the absence of Jesus. 
It's the absence of the head. Every time I fall apart, it's because I haven't taken Jesus with me to Starbucks. I haven't taken him with me on, on the road. I haven't brought him into a conversation. He is my head. See, he is my source. So how Jesus is to minister to this lampstand right here is he is to be the very source of my life. He is my head. And a holy God is going to meet the need according to the way that he sees fit because he has my best interest. So I have this huge need in my life. I have this huge need in my church. I have this huge issue I'm facing. I respond to him and say, I trust you. I release my hands from this. And I trust you to meet the need according to your standards. Hey, for your purpose. You don't have to meet it for my purpose. You meet it for your purpose. So he turns around. He sees this white, holy head of the church and in that head, the last thing, if you were to flip over to Revelation, this is uh, the eyes like glowing fire can be talked about in a statement. Uh, they're, they're explained for us in the church of oh, chapter 2, verse 18. It's Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like blazing fire. That's the description in our passage. Uh, and what's this mean? He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, uh, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Yet he goes on in verses 20 down through uh, the end of that verse, uh, well, actually verse 20 all the way down through verse 22 saying, but I see all the sin See, I see all the aspects of your church that are, not, that are not sourced by me. And in verse 23, he says, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. See, the eyes of blazing fire is he sees exactly the need. One of the difficulties, um, I'm really a big fan of expositional preaching. And what that means is, is I like to open up God's word, preach God's word, let him apply it and give us an opportunity to respond. There is another form of preaching where men get up, and I have this at churches, where pastors will come up to me and say, I need you to talk about this, 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 and this. That happened twice this last fall. Pastor comes up to me and says, I want you to talk about this, this, and this. We need you to talk about that. Well, there's a problem with that. See, what if this, this, and that's not the real issue? What if that's a... see? What if, he's, what, what if that's a symptom of a bigger issue? See, how many times have we drilled a symptom? See, uh, and you say, what's a symptom? Well, you have a, a young girl who dresses inappropriately. Well, you can dress her appropriately and she can still have the same sickness. Because the dressing inappropriately is a symptom. Uh, I used to struggle with anger. And I thought, well, biting my lip, counting to ten will fix the problem. No, not being angry is not the answer. Anger was a manifestation of a deeper issue in my life what happened to be control, which means Jesus wasn't the source. And when Jesus is not the source and I'm, in, and I'm in charge and things are not going well because I can't produce what Jesus can produce, I get angry. So hey, see, when we're talking about he has eyes of blazing fire that I just released that situation. See, whatever, whatever I'm living in, see, whatever I'm going through, I just, I trust you in this. If I don't see the way you see, see, you got eyes of blazing fire. See, you search the hearts and minds. See, you know what's going on. See, you're the source. You're the one who can meet the need. And it's for your benefit and it's for your best and, and you have my best in, intentions in your heart and, and you're bringing about and, now, I don't know how you can apply that to your life, but 
See, what area of your life is not being sourced by Him? Wherever you find that area, you'll find sin. You'll find sin. I believe that. See, what area of your life is not sourced by Him? I'm finding that uh, as I grow, grow physically older and I go through the changes that we all go through having children and then what, as those children grow in different stages, it affects every area of my life. Things change. Uh, and I find myself walking through life with Jesus and He certain temptations come and certain temptations go. Certain difficulties arise, certain, I mean, where we had money before, now we don't have money, and then we'll have more money. And money issues come and go, and, and travel issues come and go, and time with my wife issues come and go, and I mean, all, just a whole gamut of everything that life can, can throw at me. He's revealing to me over time, there, are cert, there have been certain issues of my life that I never would have guessed I was living without him being involved in it. Um, this, I, was, I told you this, I think, last night, last, this, this December, this Christmas. I had one of the most profound spiritual experiences in my life where God just revealed to me and there was no motivation. I wasn't like kicking God out of my life in this area. But there was an area of my life outside of the pulpit that was not sourced by him. And it was producing death. It was producing death in my family. It was producing death in, in relationships. It was producing death in, in, in every area of my life. Not because I chose, but because He wasn't sourcing it. I cannot tolerate, I cannot tolerate having any area of my life not sourced by Him. Because how He wants to minister to me is, is release out of my hands anything that I'm holding on to. And He wants to source that. Jesus, we love you this evening. I, uh, by, I think I could say by nature, I am a controlling person. Uh, my wife calls me a fixer. Well, I am finding that there are certain areas of my life that I cannot fix. In fact, I believe there are no areas of my life that I can fix. I believe you are the answer for every issue in my life. I believe you are the answer for every issue in the church. Jesus, we want you to be our source. We, we do. We want you to be our head. We want you to think for us. I, I want you to think for me. I want you to lead me in how to raise my kids. I want you to lead me in how to serve my wife. I want you to fulfill the areas of my body my bodily drives, my, my emotional makeup. Jesus, I want you to fulfill me like your, like your Father fulfilled you. I want you to lead me and I'll respond and follow. I trust you because you know the real issues in my life. See, you know the real problems that I'm facing. Half the time I find myself fighting against things that are not even the real issue or fixing the things that are not even the real problem. How can I release you to do what you need to do in my life tonight? See, how can I release you to minister to me as the priest that you want to be?
I want you to flow all of you into all of me. I want to be your body and I want you to be my head. That means there can be no severing of us together. I want us to be an indissoluble union in my world. Uh, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. and um, I want to give you an opportunity to respond again tonight. and I want to ask you pointedly. Um, and man, I just my personality and the way I've, I'm responding to, to the study tonight is I, I, I personally know just it hit me right off the bat um, some of the areas where I don't think I'm being sourced by Him like I want to be. And maybe you've been struggling with some things. See, maybe you've been uh, finding yourself lacking. It's, it, I, I use it as a telltale sign. Anytime things begin to not go right in my life, I immediately suspect now, hold on, are you in this, Jesus? Because that should be the only reason my, my life falls apart. He's not sourcing it. He's not there. So we're going to have some time to pray tonight. I appreciate your faithfulness in being here. I'm just it's so thrilled to be a part of this with you. And, but I want to give you the opportunity to respond tonight and, and just uh, allow Him to meet whatever need that may be, you may be facing uh, from, the, from the one side of finances and economy and fear and job all the way to the other of personal relationships, bodily drives. Uh, you're the answer, Jesus. We want to spend these moments seeking You, responding to You. Um, it's a really good message, but I want it to go beyond a message, Jesus. Uh, the Word has been presented. I want You to speak that to my heart. And I want You to speak it to the hearts of those who are here in a very personal way. Because you, you are the one that sees. You have the eyes of blazing fire. So you know exactly the issue in our lives. Would you speak to those issues? Would you point a finger in the areas of our life where you're not sourcing? Because I, I do. I need, you, I need you to move in my life. I need you to bring victory where I cannot have victory apart from you. So we want to respond to you in these moments. Uh, would you have your way tonight? And would you move? We'll give you all the praise.